that reading is the centerpiece of the book of Revelation. We have been looking at the book of Revelation for the good part of this year. It's a difficult book for us to get a handle on. We all know that. And one reason is that this book, in this book, we are not looking at the things on earth, like the history of Israel, or like the gospel where it records the activities of Jesus Christ. Revelation is not even a book of doctrine, like what we have in the letters of the New Testament. It is a book of visions. Visions of things happening, not on earth, but in heaven. It is a book about heavenly warfare. About things that are unseen to the human eye. And that's our difficulty. We, we must not simplify the things in the book and bring that down to a human level so as to make things understandable. Going that way will only distort the message of Revelation. And what I want to do is to present a structure of the book so that it will help us to fit in all the details that, that is written here. <clears throat> I've said in the centerpiece of the book is the throne of God. We read that in chapter 1 and it's again highlighted in chapter 4. And before this throne of God, we have seen that there's the created beings. And the created beings, represented by the four creatures, never cease chanting, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Everlasting, no beginning, no ending. God is sovereign and He allows things to happen as He moved the creation towards His fulfillment. And we don't often think of things in that way. We we, we only see what's in front of us. We see the present. But we are not able to see a movement over a period of time. Historians are very good at that. And not many of us are historians. What we see is the predicament that we face and then we wonder where God is and what God is doing. And that's a totally self-centered way of looking at things. And we need to turn our eyes from ourselves to see that God is sovereign and that He is directing the affairs of His creation. And of course that's not an easy thing to do. I'm not saying it is. But we must, we must try to see that because God is sovereign and He directs the affairs of His creation. And if we don't think of that and we don't acknowledge that, 
then all we see will be ourselves, our predicament, and then we wonder where God is. And often when we say that God is sovereign, very often that is a lip service without really accepting the reality of that in our lives and in our outlook. We have seen the judgment and the devastation of the earth in the book. And these are the expressed desire of God for his creation. And there's a purpose in all that. Now coming back to the book. We have started the book with the letters to the seven churches. We can understand that because we can understand the, the condemnation of the churches and the judgment given to them. And very often, most people, I mean, all, all they know of the book of Revelation are the letters to the seven churches. That's important. But we must not see the letters to the seven churches in isolation. We need to see these letters in the context of the book. What I mean is this, that the letters to the seven churches form an important landmark at the beginning of the book. And they say to us that Christ is in the midst of his churches, despite all their errors and imperfection. And that is true for us today, as we live with the errors and the imperfection of others. Christ is in the midst of all his churches, despite all their errors, and that includes us. Not only the other church down the road, you know. That forms an important landmark, bookmark, the letters to the seven churches. We have yet to see the end of the book, where John had a vision of the marriage and the Lamb, that is, Christ and his bride, the church. That forms the other bookend. So we have got two bookends, one at the beginning and one at the end. And these two events binds the, content, the contents of the book together. And that, that enables us to make sense of all that is written in the book. Must remember that John was writing at a time of great upheaval in the church and in Jerusalem. The temple which they embraced so dearly was destroyed and ransacked by the Romans. Where was God? Why did he allow his most holy place that represents his presence to be trampled on? That's unthinkable. The answer is simple. The temporal, that is, what was present on earth, was no longer needed because Christ has already come and he's in the midst of his churches and in the midst of his people. And that's an important picture for us because Christ is still doing the same in our day, in our midst. Christ is in our midst, judging us and correcting us 
As we go on our way to the great marriage supper, a theme that I now mention, and James will speak more about that in the coming weeks. <clears throat> so, Christ in the midst of his churches is so important an introduction because that is the preparation for the final consummation when the ultimate purpose of God for his creation will be fulfilled. Christ takes his redeemed body, the church, to himself. And that is depicted in Revelation as the marriage of the Lamb and his bride, the church. We must not forget these two endpoints. And unless our eyes are firmly fixed on this endpoint, the beginning and the end, on these two bookmarks, then we can, we can only understand the judgment written in the book in temporal and ethical terms. And if we look at Revelation this way, as many people do, the meaning and purpose of the judgment will be lost. And our view of what God is doing will be distorted. And this has produced many angry people. No doubt about that. So, what happened between these two bookends? We have seen the judgment and the upheaval on planet Earth. We need to see the contents of the book between these bookends as the gracious movement of God to bring his people on earth to the ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And in the process, they will experience trials and tribulation as we go on our way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And despite all that is happening to us and happening on earth, let us not forget that God is in the midst of his churches. And I keep repeating that. The two bookends are the two important pillars on which we anchor our understanding of what has happened and will be happening. So, if we don't start there, that is Christ in the midst of his churches, then we might as well ignore all that is written in the book because we make, won't make any sense of it. And if we don't fix our eyes on the marriage supper of the Lamb, that is, the ultimate reality of our union with Christ, then again, we, we might as well ignore all that is written in the book because we won't make any sense of it. And in between these two bookends is the throne of God, as I say, the centerpiece of the book. The throne of God represents the supremacy and sovereignty of God. And this is the centerpiece of the book and the heart of John's vision. And this picture of the throne is well captured by John. We have, we have seen that in, in the previous months. And in this throne of God, the creation and the redemptive motives are well represented by the four living creatures. There are four living creatures around the throne. And that represents the creative work of God. And around the throne are the 24 elders. And they represent the redemptive work of God. 
and where they sit right in front of them is the tranquility of the glassy sea. It's no longer a sea that is roaring, roaring with storms and waves, but it's a piece of glassy sea, perfect stillness. And then in front of this throne, we see ourselves. We see ourselves there when we gather with Christ who rents us. And in chapter 5, we read these words. Worthy are you, that is Christ, to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to God, and they shall reign on earth with God in front of that throne. It's a beautiful picture. And that's what that centerpiece of Revelation says to us. In between the two bookends is that throne and we represented there. And it is only within this framework that we want to see the judgment that God has meted out on his creation and on his unrepentant people. In other words, we need to see the judgment in the context of God's grace and his movement towards the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. And this is the comfort to the people suffering in those days and the comfort to us. This is the comfort in knowing that Christ is in our midst and in casting our eyes towards the new heaven and the new earth. And this is also our comfort today as we see the turmoil of world wars and of global war for economic superiority. And we hear about the World Economic Forum and really that's nothing more than a revamp of Babel where they want to create something so great, so superior that we don't need God anymore and this is done in the guise of making our lives better really, does it make it any better? and we'll say more about this deceit in a little while the judgment that we see in the book is sometimes difficult for us to make sense of because we so treasure the monuments and the development we have in this world and it's really a shame to have them all destroyed isn't it such grandeur that we see from the past but it's not so when we have our eyes fixed on the new heaven and the new earth you see the new cannot be grafted onto the old. What I mean is this. <clears throat> when you want to put new skin on a wound, you've got to debride the wound. Debridement has to take place before new skin can be grafted on. You cannot graft new skin onto a dirty old wound. Everybody knows that. It needs to be cleaned up. Amputation of a limb 
may seem like an awful thing to do. But when it's viewed in the context of saving a life, then it is a merciful action. So God does not establish a new heaven and a new earth upon a corrupt universe where evil so dominates. All evil and rebellion against God have to be destroyed. And this is the story of the book of Revelation. It is a story of the battle against evil and a story of God's final victory. We have been told there is a similarity between the plagues and destruction in Revelation. I mean the plagues that we read of in Exodus when Moses confronted Pharaoh. There's a similarity. And when you look at the plagues that happen in Egypt when Moses challenged Pharaoh, the plagues got more and more severe because of the hardness of the heart of Pharaoh. In other words, the plagues upon Egypt was the refusal of Pharaoh to acknowledge the creator of this world and to release the people of God. It is the same with the judgment in Revelation. It is because of the refusal to repent and to acknowledge God. In, in the letters to the seven churches, they were told of their errors. And what do, they, what do they need to do? They need to acknowledge those errors and they need to repent of those errors. In the midst of the judgment recorded in Revelation, the judgment upon the earth, they still refused to repent because their hearts were so hardened against God. And their refusal to repent was mentioned several times in the book of Revelation. And it was only in the last few months, or last few weeks, that uh, we hear that. So, what needs to be done when evil is so entrenched and where the heart is so hardened that it will not repent and acknowledge God? The dominion of darkness has to be abolished. And that's what we have been hearing so far. You see, the prophets of old, the prophets in Israel, were telling the people to repent of their misdeeds. However, as we know from the history of of Israel, the people continued to worship idols. And the prophets in those days, they could see that there was no hope, no future with this monarchy. With the presence, with the presence set up of the kings. The kings of Israel were installed to lead the people in the ways of God. However, king after king continued the same orgy and prostituted themselves to the heathen idols. 
And the prophets could see that a new beginning has to come. A new beginning that will avert this continuing adulterous practice of Israel. So, that's why the prophets of Israel wrote concerning the coming of a Messiah. The coming of a new era to lead the people back to God. And the judgment upon Israel was meted out on them to lead them back to God. But it did not. Because of the hardness of their hearts. So we see that despite the judgment meted out in Revelation, we were told that they just continue to refuse to repent. So it was the same with the Pharaoh in Egypt. It was the same with Israel of old. And that's why in the past few weeks, we were shown the final destruction of the harlot and the great Babylon. The harlot that led the people astray from God and the great Babylon that tried to set up a kingdom that would challenge God. And both of them represented the spirit of rebellion against the Creator God. While preparing for the sermons on Revelation, I went back to look at C.S. Lewis' interesting book, The Screwtape Letters. It's good to look at it again, even though it's written over 50 years ago, and it is so relevant. And really, what C.S. Lewis wrote there, he was a prophet of modern day. Right at the beginning of the book, he asked his fellow devils to keep the Christian focus on two things, economics and sociology. Right there in, in his first letter. Very interesting. And don't we all know that much of our church's focus and discussion is on finance? We're going to do that again in our age years. Aren't we? <laughs> well, there you are. That's what he said. And, and we're going to focus on the finance and the economics rather than to focus on what God wants us to do in our midst. And the other favorite activity of the, of the church is to make it user-friendly. A great thing. And really, this usual user-friendly business is really a sociological imposition upon the power of the Word of God. In other words, the power of the Word of God has been put aside in favor of keeping people where they are. In other words, if they don't bring the Bibles to church, we put it up on the screen. User-friendly. I'm not saying we do that. I, I do that every week too. But, uh, but I think, um, you know, while we help people 
at the same time we need to tell them where they ought to be going not to entrench them in the state where they are and this is the deception of the church and we see that in Revelation in chapter 6 it talks about the rider on the white horse and that's a picture of a rider that comes out looking like Jesus but you know he is there to deceive the world and we also read about the unholy trinity the dragon and his two beasts that mimic the father son and spirit and and these things they present to us what appear outwardly as true but that's really an imitation and a facade behind which they hide the real thing behind them is the falsehood there is no depth of substance in what's presented much like today where we're offered a lifetime warranty on the things that we buy only to find a company closed after a few years that's the deceit going on right through our society we have been kept apart from God by this deception and while we believe all these things to be true they are really keeping us away from God and keeping us away from the judgment and the correction that has got to come to us we have sold ourselves to Babylon and in time we will suffer the same fate as they there's a judgment on those who have not followed the Lamb and accept the mercy that comes from Him and in the process those who are with the Lamb will also suffer because of our identification with Christ however the day of vengeance will come and that's why we are told in scripture not to take those things into our own hands another thing that we need to know in the book of Revelation is this the power of the word was highlighted at the beginning of the book when it was presented to us that Christ was walking in the midst of his seven churches there was something in his mouth there was a sword in his mouth and this sword is the word of God and that's why the sword is in the mouth and that word is the testimony of the truth so we read as Christ appeared before the seven churches in his right hand he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength and that's the power of the word we, we really don't think much about the power of the word we like to reduce the word to a system of principles or to a system of philosophy but the word that sword is the word of God the living word Jesus Christ and this is the word that lives within us and transforms us not the system of philosophy and this is the corrective that the churches needed 
not a system of philosophy or of principles for us to apply to each and every situation that we face. And at the close of the book, we read of the coming king. And guess what? This coming king has a sword in his mouth. Revelation 19. And I'd like to read this. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and make war. That's Christ. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in robe dripped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Notice, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the, fury, of, the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on, on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And again, Revelation make this very clear. It is the power of the Word of God. The Christ who walks around his churches with the sword in his mouth and the Christ who will come in glory in majesty and power with the sword in his mouth. And that's the word of God. And that's why we hold the word of God dear as our authoritative teaching to guide us in our, in our work and in our conduct. We need to see that in the in the way we come to worship and in the way we come to see the word of God and really if we ignore that that word of God then we, we can only fall back on our own system of thinking we will hear more about this in the coming weeks. Churches have become pragmatic in the things that they do as they focus on economics and sociology rather than the Word of God. And in the past decades, the church growth movement is merely a, an exercise in sociology, in knowing where to pitch the church it's a, it's a great marketing principle. You see, we do not come to the church merely to listen to the word with our minds, but rather we come to receive the word into our hearts. And from there, the word does its work in transforming us. We cannot be transformed 
by sociology and philosophy. They don't do anything for us. What they do is that they are merely cerebral trappings. It fills our mind with knowledge. And what it does to us is that it enables us to better justify ourselves in our wayward actions against God. It makes us great in give us that ability to justify the things that we do with a seeming righteousness. And that will not work in God's scheme of things. We are justified by receiving Christ, the Word, into our hearts. And that's why we see the beginning of the book with Christ in his walking in the midst of his churches with the sword in his mouth and at the end the coming king coming in glory and in power still with the sword in his mouth the word of God the living word Jesus Christ there's no substitute for that and this is the way we understand the sovereignty of God it is not the sovereign God who will not put us through any suffering we will because until evil has been done away with they will attack the Christians because we bear the name of Christ since he can't do very much about Christ he attacks his followers and that's what we need to expect there is today let us not forget it that there is a warfare that is going on in the heavens and that's what Revelation is trying to tell us what's going on and we are asked to put our trust in the sovereign Lord and this is the message of comfort to the Christians at the end of the first century and it is also a message of comfort for us today.